This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday, the 10th of December. So if you think back to the second wave in Victoria, one of the biggest problems was the number of healthcare workers who got sick. We saw more than 3,500 people who worked in healthcare catching COVID and it proved really difficult to get the healthcare system back under control again. So, Norman, what went wrong there? And maybe take us back to the, the very origins of coronavirus in Victoria and how we, we came to see so many people get sick. So... There were two aspects to this in terms of healthcare workers. One was the age, residential aged care, well over 100 aged care, residential aged care facilities. And a lot of that, those statistics in terms of 3,500 were aged care workers. And it's kind of easy to understand how it would happen in an aged, residential aged care because it's more like a home than a hospital. And it just ran out of control. And the fact that it, it, it was in so many aged care settings was the fact that there was just things going wrong in that setting. The real dilemma was why were there so many, well over a thousand healthcare workers infected in hospitals in Victoria? And some hospitals had hundreds and hundreds of people on furlough. What went wrong? Now at Western Health, which was run by Professor, the infectious disease area is run by Professor Marion Kaner, who has been overseas for a long time, came back. She really tried to run down what what went wrong because they got very few. In fact, at Western Health, I think there was only one infection in the first wave, uh, which was an abattoir worker. And then they were kind of hit by this truck, which was healthcare workers getting infected in the second wave. And they were doing intensive contact tracing and trying to find out what was going on. They trained people in PPE, but it was only in ED and ICU when you've got the rest of the hospital there. And it was in the rest of the hospital where they had their problem. So today we've got Marion Kaner, who's done an analysis of this with her colleagues and actually presented it yesterday at a conference. Marion, welcome to uh, Coronacast. Great to speak with you today. So, Marion, there were about 3,500, 3,600 healthcare workers infected and quite a lot in hospitals. Let's just look at the hospital situation because, in a sense, that's what you were looking after in Western Health. And you've done a detailed analysis of, of what happened. Can you just describe that experience and what you've come up with? The first wave, we only had a single healthcare worker who was infected at Western Health. This was a nurse who had extensive prolonged in-room exposure when there was a patient who was in the pre-symptomatic phase admitted for a work-related injury from Cedar Meats. Um, which is an abattoir, which then had an outbreak, but that was not known at the time. This particular patient then required surgery, but everybody else who was exposed in the operating room who wore surgical masks and eye protection in the presence of what we call aerosol-generating procedures, so these are procedures such as putting the breathing tube into the patient to anaesthetize them, all those tested negative. And so we learned some really valuable lessons at that time. We learned that it was really important that our nursing staff, every shift, would document fever and respiratory symptoms in order to ensure that a person would be rapidly tested. We also routinely put abattoir workers into quarantine, even if they had no respiratory symptoms. It really reinforced the concept of a that an unrecognized infectious person really presents the greatest risk to our organization. So, Marion, this is in the first wave. I mean, what sort of month are we talking about here? I don't have a date in front of me. I believe it was late March, early April. 
So we actually felt really good about ourselves. We had continued to really train our staff in putting on and removing personal protective equipment. It is the removal of personal protective equipment that often presents the greatest risk to people. And why is that? Because at the time that you remove your personal protective equipment, you have an opportunity to contaminate yourself. So, Marion, that was the first wave where you, you taught people about PPE and donning and doffing, and you also focused on high-risk areas like ED and the ICU. But the second wave was very different, wasn't it? For the first one or two weeks, it seemed very similar to the first wave, where most of the healthcare workers who got infected were infected in the community. They had household members who were infected. It was very clear that it was acquired in the community. But then second, third week in, we started seeing a different pattern where it really appeared to be that they may be acquiring it in the workplace where we started seeing some clustering. So we, instead of just having a single healthcare worker who got infected, there may be two or three healthcare workers who would get infected on a ward within a 14-day time period. So that makes you really suspicious that there may be something else going on. And it wasn't just in emergency rooms and ICUs. It was beyond where you train people to work. Correct. I think one of his big surprises um, was the place which was really at very high risk were our geriatric wards. So these were wards which received patients who were transferred from residential aged care facilities. And it may not have been known at the time that there were any infections within that residential aged care facility. The patients were admitted without any respiratory symptoms and they were incubating coronavirus during that time period and then would infect other staff. And the pattern that we saw were that we had patients who were transferred from these aged care facilities who would then often exhibit confusion and delirium and they would be shouting and they would be screaming and they would be kicking. This is what we termed, we coined the term aerosol generating behavior. And so outside the healthcare setting, we know that choirs and churches where people are singing or where there's a loud shouting, that these can be super spreading events. But these had not really been described in the literature or in the WHO guidance that this could be a risk factor within a hospital because everybody assumed that the ventilation, the number of air exchanges in hospitals would be good enough to take care of it. And I think what we might be seeing is a combination of factors taking place, that you've got aging infrastructure with air handling systems that may not be performing to the specification, ideal specifications, issues with airflow, then a lot of patients coming in at one time who may be highly infectious because they're just starting to get their symptoms. So they've got really high viral load and then they are shouting, which probably puts in about 100 times as much aerosols versus somebody who was just lying there quietly. They would be kicking, so having lots, lots of air volume going up and down and transmitting additional aerosols, probably again multiplying it by sixfold. And so instead of having a quietly lying patient, somebody who would be kicking and screaming probably ex is expelling 600 times the amount of aerosol that you would have. And then if you combine that with issues with 
the number of air exchanges not being optimal, and if you've got multiple of these patients, then I think that that poses a particular risk. So let's just talk about the ventilation for a moment, because what I've been told is that in some hospitals, while you put people in a single room, to, which you thought was the safest thing to do for isolation, that in fact the ventilation was gassing the air from the single room into the general corridor. So we, back in January, met with the engineers. We went through and made sure that all of our negative pressure rooms were working perfectly well, that the air was all being expelled to the outside. We converted some of our wards into a negative ward in comparison to the corridors, and we had full fresh air coming in. One of the issues which we ran into was we had a very large number of patients who were suspect COVID or confirmed COVID, and we needed to accommodate these patients. And unfortunately, we did not have as many single rooms as we would have liked. Not just not enough single negative pressure rooms, but also not enough single rooms. So we had multiple multi-occupancy rooms, so two bedrooms and lots of four bedrooms, And in order to keep people safe, we initially thought that we would cohort people who were known positive with each other into a four-bedroom. But I was really surprised to see that the design of these four bedrooms was such that there was no air register to take the air out of that room itself, that the air would move actually into the corridor, whether the door was open or closed. So that would mean that you are potentially exposing people, not just who are in the room, who are taking care of these patients directly, but also patients or staff who may be down the corridor at the nurse's station who never had direct patient contact. What are the main lessons here? I think we really need to train our workforce on the geriatric side because while I'm very, very much hoping that we do not have a third wave, if it is community spread, there is still a really high risk that it will go into residential aged care facilities unless there are some major changes made with the risk of transferring patients who are infected with COVID from residential aged care facilities into hospitals. And so these geriatric locations within the hospital will be at high risk. So I think that is a really important target. I think we also need to pay a lot of attention to the infrastructure. We need to look carefully at the direction of airflow, as well as the number of air exchanges, and take that into account in the design of new facilities and also explore mitigating strategies um, for existing infrastructure. So, for example, looking at portable HEPA filters or air scrubbers to assist with um, clearing some of those aerosols. Just finally, Marion, one of the big debates here going through has been that the infectious control expert group has been obsessed with droplet spread near near contact. But what we're describing here in the hospital setting is what a lot of people were worried about and a lot of international experts were worried about, particularly in ventilation and airflow, was that the serious risk is from aerosol spread at some distance. So I think it's a combination. I think droplets are really important. I think the very first patient that we had, uh, the very first staff member who got infected, really showed the importance of a droplet. So I think that we do, that distance is real, physical distancing is really important and wearing of surgical masks can really provide a lot of protection. However, we also need to be conscious, especially in areas which are less well ventilated, that we need to take account the aerosols and make sure that staff wear the appropriate personal protective equipment. 
We also need to also really make sure that everybody knows how to remove the personal protective equipment carefully so that they don't self-contaminate themselves and that they are not rushed in this. I always say to everybody, with this virus, you have to act fast in absolutely everything that we do, except for when you take off your personal protective equipment. Marion Kainer, thank you so much for uh, joining us on CoronaCast. My pleasure. Well, Marion, thank you so much for joining us. And that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. If you've got a question, listeners, go to abc.net.au slash Coronacast. Click on Ask Your Questions and mention Coronacast so that we can find it. We'll see you tomorrow. See you then. Listener.